Father, uh, as we carry on in our study in Revelation and as we look at these very uh, disturbing passages about these seven judgments, these final judgments that you pour out on this earth before you return to rule and reign, Lord, help us to keep all of this in perspective and to, to realize that uh, uh, this book that we're studying, this book of Revelation, this Bible that we uh, read, Lord, is not a book of judgment. It is a book of redemption. And, Lord, that's the focus, even in these terrible uh, times which you describe that are coming upon this earth, Lord, and uh, that, that uh, in the midst of all of that, you're working a great work of love, a great work of redemption. Lord, and that's true for our own lives. Help us to be mindful of that. Those troubles that we have sometimes, Lord, that seem to come our way, that, that uh, seem to be filtered through your hand, Lord, help us to remember that they come at us uh, not to destroy us, Lord, but to redeem us. They come at us not from a God of hate, but from a God of love. And so, Lord, teach us those lessons today and, and help us to go out in this tough world in which we live and and, and to be confident of the fact, Lord, that, you, that you're on a mission not to harm us, but to do us good. And we know that all things that you do for us, Lord, work together for our good. And help us to realize that in our daily lives. And we just ask for you to bless this study today and bless it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. And as I said last week, we're going through some of the toughest uh, chapters in the entire Bible to study, and not so much because they're so difficult to interpret, because I think they kind of speak for themselves. What makes these uh, chapters so tough is that it's a very unpleasant subject matter that we're looking at. We're looking at a very graphic description of the judgment of mankind, uh, and not only that, the hell that follows thereafter for the wicked. And so so they're, they're troubling chapters. And for this reason, uh, there are a lot of people who see uh, the book of Revelation as a book of gloom and doom. And, and so a lot of people won't read this book. They won't even look at this book. And some people, after they read it, have the impression that God hates the human race. And somehow he's out to destroy the human race. And and they see him as a mean God, a God that they refuse to believe in because, because, hey, they want the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. And they want the God of love, not this God of hate that you seem to see in the book of Revelation. Scottish author C.J. Sanson uh, expresses this view by asking a question. Listen to what he says. He says, have you ever thought about what a God would be like who actually ordained and executed the cruelty that is in the book of Revelation. This holocaust of mankind. How could a loving God do that? Yet so many of these Bible men accept the idea without even a second thought. No, not amen. Samson is wrong. He's wrong. Because I'm a Bible man, and I've given this a lot of thought and I've come to some conclusions as I've given thought to this issue and one of the conclusions that I've come to is that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament he is 
a God of love. But he's also a just God, a just God who judges sin in love. He does it in love. He doesn't, sin destroys mankind, and God sees that. And so he judges sin and sinners who refuse to give up their sin. And he does that in love. And God doesn't hate the world. I'm convinced of that. God doesn't hate the world. The world hates God. I mean, we're told in John 3.16 that God so loved his creation, he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So the focus of the book of Revelation isn't the destruction of mankind. The focus of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ who's given as Savior of the world in order to redeem mankind. And that's really what our focus should be as we go through this book. And that's why as we're reading Revelation, as we, we go through these judgments, right in the midst of these judgments, he takes a break and we get these several chapters of narrative where he shows what he's trying to, God shows us what he's trying to do through these judgments. And one of the things he does, I mean, you see his grace because he, we see this picture, and I believe it's in chapter 10, where he sends these two witnesses. These two witnesses who, who stand on the Temple Mount, and they warn Israel, and they warn the rest of the world, don't follow the Antichrist. The Antichrist is evil, and his ways are evil, and God is going to judge that evil. And so God gives them this warning. And then we come to another, angel, we come to another witness, and it's an angel in the sky, and he gives out the gospel of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ for all to see before these judgments come. And then we hear another angel who's warning the people that are left on this earth in the great tribulation, do not take the mark of the beast. Because if you take the mark of the beast, you will spend eternity in hell. And so all of that is about mercy and grace. It's not about judgment. But here's the problem. The majority of the people in this world would rather die than have Jesus Christ rule their lives. And so God uses these plagues just like he uses them in our lives. And he uses these wars. And his purpose is to get people to repent so that they can be redeemed. But what's their reaction? And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. You come to chapter 6 of Revelation, and we see all of these judgments taking place on the earth, and instead of repenting, you see the people hiding in the mountains, and listen to what they cry out. They cry out, May the rocks fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. God's trying to get them to repent, and they would rather the rocks fall on them and, and die instead of give their lives to Jesus Christ. When we get to the next chapter, we're going to see these seven plagues that are poured out on the earth. And instead of repenting, you know what the people are going to do? They're going to blaspheme the name of the Lord. You're going to hear them blaspheme. They're going to have these pains and they're going to have these sores. And God's going to be doing everything he can to get them to repent. But instead of repenting, they're going to blaspheme the name of the Lord. And there are a lot of people in this world today who are no different from the wicked that are going to be destroyed uh, at the end of the time when these plagues are poured out on this earth. They die blaspheming God. 
Early in my ministry, I remember a very difficult situation. A lady in our church asked me to go visit her brother who was dying of cancer. And I just don't really love those kind of duties, but I reluctantly went. And I went to the hospital, and as I came towards his room, I could hear him cursing out the nurse. I mean, just the, about as foul as language I've ever heard in my life. And he's cursing out the nurse because the nurse wouldn't let him smoke a cigarette. He wanted to smoke a cigarette before he died. The very thing that was killing him, he wanted to smoke. So I approached the room and I went in there and I told him who I was, that I was pastor of Suburban Baptist Church and that his uh, sister had asked me to, to come and visit with him and talk to him. And I said, I want to, you want to share the gospel with you and I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And he said, let me tell you something. And boy, he began to, he began to curse the name of Jesus Christ. And he began to tell me, I don't want anything to do with your Jesus Christ. He said, I would rather die and go to hell than spend one minute with Jesus Christ. And I said, as you wish. And I walked out of the room and I left. And a couple of days later, he died. And I, was I walked away from that experience and I was absolutely amazed that a man in that situation who knew that he was about to meet his maker was still willing to curse God to his face. And, and after years of ministry, I'm convinced that there's a world of people out there like that. They might not want to curse God to his face, but they would, no matter what God does to get their attention, they would rather die and go to hell than give their life to Jesus Christ. Now, the way they rationalize that is they just say, I don't believe in hell, and, or I don't believe in God. But deep down inside, let me tell you something. Men are without excuse. We all know there's a God. And so when people are doing that, they might not be cursing the name of the Lord, but they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that's just as bad. That's the unpardonable sin. That's the sin that will get you a one-way ticket to hell. But this book, this book of Revelation is not about the belligerent rebels of this world. I mean, the only reason they're in this book, the only reason they're identified, is to vindicate God for his judgments. Because we hear them cursing God, we hear them rebelling against God, we hear them uh, trying to take over God's world. And, and so by identifying them, we vindicate God for judging them. But this book is not about the rebels, this book is about the redeemed. It's about you and me. Those people who have come to their senses to the point where we fear God as our creator and we're convicted of our, that we've sinned against our creator and we've received Jesus Christ into our lives, we've repented of our sins, we've been born again and we've become children of God. That's who this book is all about. Actually, this book is all about Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us. But the second group of main characters, uh, out, maybe you could say the angels are pretty important here, but the, mo the most important group of people are not the people who are judged, but the people who are redeemed. And we see three types of Christians in this book, or three stages of Christianity in this book. Uh, 
One is you have the people who are, you see them in chapter 4, they're before the throne of God. They've died and they've gone to heaven and absent from the body, present from the Lord. So when the great tribulation begins, they're there in the presence of God. Then you have another group of people that are there in chapter 4, and that's the raptured church. And then you have another group of people who are a, a multitude of people who are saved during the great tribulation, and uh, we call them the tribulation saints. And that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter number 15. Again, right in the midst of these judgments, God's going to show us some more of his redeemed people, and he's going to show us that in chapter uh, 15. Uh, but first, before we get to the tribulation saints, he's going to uh, tell us a little bit more about the work of the angels. So look in verse number 1 of chapter 15. Verse number 1 of chapter 15. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Now, man, what's this going to be? Great and marvelous. And it was seven angels having the seven last plagues for in those plagues, the wrath of God is complete. It is perfected. Now, that's an interesting phrase there, great and marvelous. If you look down to verse number 3, that's the same phrase that appears in verse 3 as the tribulation saints sing praise unto the Lord. So it's that same phrase. So the phrase, in context, it means the same thing. I mean, it means what it says. It's simply great and marvelous, superb and wonderful. I mean, i got to ask the question, what's wonderful and superb about seven angels carrying the seven last plagues that are going to be poured out on this earth? Well, let me tell you what's wonderful and marvelous about it. These events mark the end of man's rebellion against God and the beginning of of the rule of Jesus Christ on this earth. That's what's great and marvelous about it. Now let me see if I can explain what I'm trying to say there, what the reason you have this description of these plagues is great and marvelous. If you could go back to the days of Mo Moses and you could interview one of the Egyptians after the Israelites had gone across the Red Sea and they had entered into the Sinai wilderness, if you would if you could interview one of those Egyptians and you could ask them what they thought about the plagues of God, those ten plagues that struck the nation of Egypt, I'm sure they would tell you that they were the most terrible things that ever happened to them. But if you were to go across the Red Sea and you were to interview an Israelite after they had been chased by Pharaoh through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea had come over the Pharaoh's and Pharaoh's armies, and he had killed all of them, and you had asked them, what did you think about those plagues? You know what they would have said? They were great, and they were marvelous. Because as a result, they were delivered from bondage. So see, it's, so it, from our perception, these plagues are great, and they're marvelous because they're going to usher in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They're going to be the ultimate thing that redeems this earth. They're going to perfect God's wrath on this earth so that all the wicked are removed and all the strength of the wicked is removed and they're gone forever. So you have these seven plagues and they are part of the redemption 
of our creation. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn there, but let me read what Paul says. He says that the creation, the cre- no, I'm sorry, the creation was placed in bondage, but in hope. When Adam and Eve sinned, the creation was cursed, and it was placed in bondage because sin causes death, and God wanted to teach us about sin. And so he allowed the curse to come upon this earth. He, all he had to do was fast forward the results of sin, and he brought this curse upon the earth. And so the earth, when Adam and Eve sinned, was placed in bondage. But it was placed in bondage, Paul says, in hope. God placed us in bondage in hope. Not to destroy us, but to redeem us. Because, listen to what Paul says, because when Christ comes, the creation itself will be delivered from bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And so all of this, these plagues that we see in Revelation, are the last thing that takes place before the wrath of God is complete and the creation is set free. You know, I watch my, we have a cat that we think has gotten killed here recently, but I've watched my cat, we have coyotes and stuff that kind of roam our neighborhood and we're missing a cat, so we, you know, we got these giant owls out there we're missing a cat, so we're a little bit worried about one of our cats. But, but, you know, I worry about him, but I watch my cat, and my cat kills these little hummingbirds. And I see the little dead hummingbird, and I say, how terrible is this? You know, and I don't know what the hummingbirds kill. I mean, they kill a lot of sugar. I know that. My wife makes a sugar water and puts it in there, and they drink it. They guzzle it up. But we live in a creation. You can't help but look at this creation and see that this creation is cursed. It's cursed with violence and sin and death. And so we all long for that curse to be removed. And that's what this book of Revelation is all about. The day comes when God sends out his perfect plagues, his complete plagues, and it removes the wicked from this earth and the earth is redeemed from bondage. So... We're going to look at these plagues, but before God describes these plagues, he's going to go back to this theme of redemption. And we're going, to, we're going to see this scene in heaven that's going to remind us that this book is about redemption and not about judgment. Because in this book, in chapter 15, beginning in verse number 2, we see this group of redeemed Christians we call the tribulation saints. And they're worshiping before the throne of God, before these bowls of wrath are poured out. So I have a hunch, this is my own take on this, that before these final bowls of wrath are poured out, the tribulation saints are going to all be removed from the earth. Now, they're not going to be removed in such a pleasant way as you and I have been removed. They're going to lose their heads at the guillotine. And so that guillotine, in a way, I think before the blade hits their head, I think that they will, God will take them out of here. So in a sense, they will be raptured too, but they will lose their lives in the process. But it's going to be pretty bad here, and I think they're going to be pretty glad to get out of here. And that's the scene that we see when we come to verse number 2. We see them praising God along with the rest of the church like we saw in chapter 4. It's almost a repeat of chapter 4. It's just a different group of people. Look at verse number 2. It says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Y'all remember that from chapter 4? Okay, a sea of glass, uh, I mean, this crystal glass that goes out from the throne of God, uh, mingled with fire, mingled with glory. 
and those who have victory over the beast. Now, this is a description of the tribulation saints. Over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, and look what they've got in their hands. They've got harps. Now, again, that word is the Greek word guitarist, so it just simply means string instrument. So, hey, they might be rock and rollers. I don't know. But, they're, but they've, got, they've got some kind of stringed instrument in their hand, and they're praising God. That's the same scene we saw in chapter 4 with the rest of the church. The group of people who had died and gone on to be with the Lord and the raptured saints are all praising God in chapter 4. And now in chapter 15, we see the tribulation saints praising God. And we know, that we know they're the tribulation saints because how did they get there? They refused to take the mark. They refused to worship the beast and they refuse to take his number. That's going to be a tough thing to do, by the way. If you're here today, and I get raptured out of here, and most of the people in here get raptured, and you're left, let me tell you what, you're going to be required to take the mark. It won't be long after that. You, about three and a half years later, the beast is going to come in power. He's going to require that you take the mark. Don't take the mark. Again, I suggest you go back and read the last chapter because if you take the mark, you have doomed yourself to an eternity in hell where, the, where you never rest, where, the, where you're in, 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 the, in fire and brimstone forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternal torment. So you don't take the mark. I've got a better suggestion for you. Get serious about your relationship with the Lord right now and you don't need to worry about those things. But don't take the mark. If there is no rapture, some people believe there's no rapture. If there is no rapture, I'm going to still believe there is. I'm just going to think, man, I, I better really straighten up because why did I get left here? But if there isn't a rapture, don't take the mark. All right, now, here they are standing on the same sea of glass as the church in chapter 4 before the great tribulation began, and they're playing these harps, and they're singing a song, the song of the redeemed. Listen, listen to this song. It says, they, sang, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And they, they've got another song. They've got two songs they sing. And the song of the Lamb. And listen to the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? What fool would not do that? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Wow, what a song. What a great song. You want me to sing it? I just, I just spoke it then. No, I'm not going to, I'll spare you that. But let's look at the first song they sang. They, saw, they sang the song of Moses. Now, what was the song of Moses? You remember when the Israelites crossed those Wonderful Israelites. They crossed the Red Sea, and I mean, they were some happy dudes and dudettes. I mean, they were excited. They had crossed the Red Sea. They were out of bondage. Uh, God had delivered them. They had seen all of these miracles. They had seen Pharaoh's armies drown in the Red Sea, and they couldn't be more excited, and they just broke out in song. Now, a few days later, not even a few days later, they're complaining, well, I wish we were back in Egypt. We're, 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 we're starving out here. We're thirsty out here. What in the world did you bring us over here for, Moses? But, but at first they didn't do that. They sang a song. And I want to listen to, that, listen to that song a little bit. So go back with me 
to the second book of the Bible, toward the beginning of the Bible, in chapter number 15 of Exodus. Exodus chapter 15. And we'll look at the Song of Moses for just a second. I'm not going to go through the whole song, but I'm going to get you the part that I believe they were singing. They might have sang every verse of this, but I think, there's, I think there's, we're going to uh, nail down the part that they were singing. And you'll see how it fits them to the T and why they sang it. Look at, look at uh, chapter 15 of Exodus. And verse number, let's just look at the first verse to start with. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The wicked have been destroyed. And so here are these tribulation saints. They're singing the same thing because the wicked are about to be destroyed. The Antichrist and all of the people who had persecuted them and, 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 and eventually killed them so that they're before the throne of God, they're about to be thrown into the sea. They're about to be killed. And so they're singing. Now jump ahead to verse number six. It says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. See how great and marvelous this is, what's happening? I mean, these seven plagues are going to be vengeance upon a wicked world who had killed these people. And they say, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in your greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown. Now, watch this. You have overthrown those who rose against you. You've overthrown those who rose up against you. Here's the justification right here for God's judgments. Mankind has risen up against their creator. And they've said, we will not have this man rule over us. And so God rises up against them. God's just going to take that so long. Man, you look at the United States of America right now, how people have risen up against God. And at some point, this nation is going to be overthrown if we don't have some kind of revival. He says, and, and, and some people are going to rejoice when that happens. Because they're getting sick and tired of the things that are happening by the people who control the powers of this nation and, by the powers of, and the powers of this world. And so when it happens, they're rejoicing. Your right hand, O oh Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O oh Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who have risen up against you. You sent forth your rat wrath and it consumed them like stubble. See, that's almost a prophecy there of those plagues that are coming upon the earth during, during the uh, Great Tribulation because they weren't consumed by fire. Uh, Pharaoh and his armies weren't consumed by fire. They were consumed by the Red Sea, drowning them. But this is a picture of what takes place when these plagues come upon the earth. Then jump down to verse 13. You and your mercy. See, see his judgments are all about mercy. Look at verse, verse 13. You in your mercy have led forth the people, watch this, whom you have redeemed. You know, it, when you read the book of Exodus, you're not reading a story about the judgment of Egypt. That's not the story. That's not the main line of the story, is it? The main line of the story is the redemption of Israel. And through Israel comes the Messiah who redeems the world. And so it's, a, it's the redemption of Creation that we're looking at, and that's true for Revelation too. It's not about the judgment of mankind. It's about the redemption of mankind. It's about rede the redemption of the creation. He says, 
The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them in your strength. Now watch this. This is the ultimate goal of God. And this is the ultimate goal of his judgments. It isn't to destroy people. You know what his ultimate goal is? To get you and I home. Home to him. God wishes that none should perish. That all should come to eternal life through him and with him. He wants us all to dwell on his holy hill. He wants us all to have those harps in our hand praising him forever. That's our choice. But that's his heart. That's what he wants. It says, it says you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. And you have guided them in your strength to your holy hill, to your holy habitation. Then jump down to verse number 16. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till you, he's talking about the wicked there, till you, your people pass over, until you take care of your people, till, the, till, till we pass over into glory. Hey, God's going to take care of the wicked. He says they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. How does he purchase us? He purchased us with his blood. Here are these tribulation saints who were part of the apostate church, and they went into the great tribulation. But now they see the light. They've come to their senses, and they realize that God delivered them out of eternal death, that he saved them, and, and he's passed over them. He's passed over their sins, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, he has purchased them, and he's paid for their sins. He says, you will bring, verse number 17, you will bring them in and plant them. Watch this, in the mountain of your inheritance. He's talking about Israel here, but he's also talking about the church. He's also talking about these, these tribulation saints who are going to be planted one day in heaven. This scene that we're seeing here in Revelation is a future scene, but in God's eyes it's already happened because he's omniscient. He says, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. He's not talking about a temple here made with hands. He's talking about an eternal temple. He's talking about Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple made by God. And he says, for your own, he says, he says, in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have, with, with, which your hands have established. And then he finishes this up. The Lord shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Why are the wicked destroyed? Because they rebel against the rule of God. And once these seven plagues are poured out on this earth, the wicked will be gone, and only those who worship the Lord, who submit to his rule, will be left on this earth, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. So there's the song of Moses they're singing. But they're not done. These guys, these guys are on key, and they're... They're singing several songs here. Go back to chapter 15 of Revelation, and let's look at the next part of this song that they sing. This is their own course, and they, they've written this course. You know, but 
I can hear these words, and these are the same words that I sing to the Lord. Listen, listen, listen to what, he, what they sing. Great and marvelous. I'm looking at verse number 3 of chapter 15. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Who are they worshiping here? They're worshiping none other than Jesus Christ. Because listen to what it says. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. What a name for Jesus Christ. King of the saints. King of those who are not rebels. Those who have submitted to the rule of Jesus Christ. Those who have made him their king. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. In other words, you have been vindicated by your judgments. You have, by your judgments, you have overthrown those who have risen up against you, and you have given liberty to, to the redeemed. And so great, and look at what he says, great and marvelous are your works. Even your judgments, they're great and marvelous. For, because you're the king of the saints. Who's the king of the saints? Jesus Christ is the king of the saints. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Lord God Almighty. And finally, these tribulation saints understand redemption as much as anyone else. Now remember, they were former members of the apostate church. You, you're running into these people all the time. These people who say, always, all roads lead to heaven. Every religion leads to heaven. Everybody's going to be saved. Uh, whether you worship Jesus or you worship Buddha or you worship the gods of the Hindu religion, everybody's going to make it to heaven because God is a God of love. And they bought into this. But they don't see it that way any longer. They went through the Great Tribulation and they saw the result of worshiping false gods. They saw the result of worshiping the devil and his beast. They saw all of that and they didn't take the mark and they, they came to their senses and they received Jesus Christ and now they say marvelous and wonderful are your works. And they know that, they say that Jesus, you alone are holy. You are the only God. You are the only way. You're the only true. You're the only life. No one comes to the heaven except through you. And all the nations shall come before you and they will worship you as the true and the living God. That's what they're singing there. But first, the judgments. Before all this redemption comes, we have to have these judgments. And so we come to this terrible scene in verse number 5. Look, at it. Look again with me. Chapter 15, verse number 5. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Now that's a pretty good scene right there. I mean, here you see this heavenly temple. And what do you notice about it? The door is open. It's always open. Everyone who's in heaven has access to the presence of God. Everyone who has heaven in their hearts has access to the presence of God. You know, you remember back in chapter 4 when John was talking about this scene in heaven where the, trip, where the raptured saints and the saints who had died and gone on to be with the Lord, they were all gathered together before the throne. And you remember that scene. And you remember how he described that scene. The first thing that he noticed was that the door was wide open. 
Now, he had been to the earthly temple on many an occasion, and he had never seen that door open. Nobody went into the, into the holy place of the temple. Nobody went in there. Only a few priests went in there to minister, and the, and the high priest went in there once a year in order to make atonement for the sin of Israel, for the sins of Israel. But only once a year. But otherwise, that door was sham, uh, slammed shut, and you couldn't get into the presence of God. So John goes to heaven. And he sees the heavenly temple. And the thing that strikes him first is, listen to what he says. He says, he says, I looked and behold, the door of the temple was wide open. I mean, they would have never left that thing open in, in Jerusalem. But they, the temple in heaven, it was wide open. And listen what? Listen to this. It is always wide open for the redeemed. If you're one of the redeemed, it is always wide open. Forever it will be wide open to the redeemed. Forever except for one exception. And we're going to look at that exception now. Let's look, go to verse number six. And out of the temple came seven angels having seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chest girded with golden bands. Now look at that picture right there. You got these majestic, godly angels. They're coming out of the temple. They're perfectly pure. They're, 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 they're uh, radiating the very glory of God. They've got these golden bands around their chest. Beautiful angels. The last thing you think they would be carrying with them would be seven terrible plagues. But that tells us something about these judgments. These plagues are going to wipe out the rest of the population of this earth. They're gonna, it's gonna, all the wicked are going to be killed. But the fact that they're pure and the fact that these angels are majestic, it tells us that they're special angels of God and that these judgments are just and fair and that they're coming from a loving God. And you've got these beautiful angels ministering these terrible judgments. You've got a beautiful God who's really in charge of these judgments. Because look at the next verse, in verse number 7. It says, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven gold, golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. What are these bowls they're carrying? It's not the wrath of the angels. It's the wrath of God. And watch what happens in verse number 8. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. You go over to, to uh, the scene when Solomon built the temple and how it was filled with smoke and nobody could stand and everybody had to leave and everybody fell down because of the glory of God was so strong, the presence of God was so strong. And you get this same scene revisited here in the holy temple in heaven. You have the temple filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one... Now, the door's not shut, but nobody can go in. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. You catch that? What's going on there? At this point, the guys take their guitars, they take their violins, the guys and girls, all the church, and they get out of the temple. All the angels leave the temple. And God is there 
all alone. I mean, I'm pretty sure that what we see here in Revelation 15, 8 is the same thing that we see in Revelation 8, 1. It coincides perfectly with that. When we, in Revelation chapter 8, 1, the seventh seal is opened. And if you remember, there was silence in heaven for a period of about a half an hour. Now, these are the seven bowls of wrath that we're looking at now, but if you remember, I showed you when we went through the, the bowls and the trumpets that they all overlap each other. The seventh seal is, marks the blowing of the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls of wrath. And so all of these overlap. And so the scene that we're getting right here, we're getting a scene where there's silence in heaven, and God is in his temple, and he's all alone. And, he, and that tells us something. That tells us that he's all alone in his judgment of mankind. It is his work to judge. It is not our work to judge. The judgment comes from God, not from us. And we're out of line when we try to judge. Now, the, he uses the angels but it's God's judgment. You know, why is God all by himself when he judges the world? Well, to maybe understand that, we've got to go back to another time when God was all alone. Do you remember when God was all alone on that cross? And he was dying for the sins of the world. Now, we, we don't know what happened that day. We, so there's people trying to explain that. You don't know what happened that day. Let me tell you the result of it. The result of it was that every single sin that every single person who has ever lived has committed. Now, I've committed a bunch of them. And, and you have too. But they were all paid for on that cross. How were they paid for? Well, we don't know. Because God did that work all alone. He didn't use us to do that work. Now, there were people who participated in his crucifixion, but they didn't participate in the payment of the sins. God paid for those sins. And that's why at the beginning of the sixth hour, which was about noon, till the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over the whole earth. Why? Because God was doing the great, his great work of redemption for you and me. He was paying for the sins of the world. And it was his work alone. It was a terrible, terrible experience beyond our wildest imagination that only he was privy to. We don't know what went on on that cross. More terrible than anything we can possibly imagine. And you talk about love. You talk about judgment. He was judged for me and you. All the sins of the world were laid upon him for me and you. But all of that judgment that went upon him was redemption for me and you. And he did that all alone. All alone. 
And that's going to be true when he pours out these bowls of wrath on this earth in the great tribulation. It will be solely the work of God. That's exactly the way Isaiah describes it over in Isaiah chapter 63. 63, I'm sorry. Go to the middle of your Bibles. Then head back toward Revelation just a little bit and you, you won't have any trouble finding Isaiah. But find Isaiah chapter 63. And we'll finish with this. Isaiah sees something really strange. He sees the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. Remember when his whole glory filled the earth? But this time he sees the Lord and his apparel is all red with blood. And Isaiah asked him in verse number 2 of chapter 63, he says, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads the winepress. And then the Lord speaks. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. He's speaking forward to the day when these seven bowls of wrath are poured out, the judgments of God, and he says, No one was with me. Sure, there were the angels pouring out the bowls, but God is doing the work of wrath. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance. Verse number four is in my heart. But watch this. Watch this. What's the purpose? And the year of my redeemed has come. His wrath is all about redemption. Redemption of Israel, redemption of the church, redemption of all of creation. Then he says in verse number five, I looked, but there was no one to help. The Lord did all this on his own. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. I mean, therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. I mean, just as salvation was the work of God alone, uh, redemption was the work of God alone, so is this final judgment the work of God alone. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. I did it on my own. And my own fury sustained me. I have trodden. When he says his own fury sustained you, I am just in these judgments is what he's saying. I mean, I have a right. I mean, think of the patience of God. You listen to the blasphemies that go on in this world today, and you wonder why God doesn't strike about half of us dead. And he's patient, and he's patient, and he's patient. And, he's, and he finally says, enough is enough. And he says, and in my own fury, my own fury sustained me. I had plenty of reason to destroy these people. And I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. The wicked, those who hate Christ, those who hate Israel, those who hate the church, uh, those who love the Antichrist, who love things that are Antichrist, have finally been brought down, and their strength has been brought down with them. And we have arrived at the day of the redeemed. You know, I love these songs of the redeemed. 
I love these songs, and I don't have to sit down and try to memorize these songs because everything that's in these songs is in my heart. I mean, I know that the works of God are great and majestic. I know that he alone is God. I know that he's the king of kings and Lord of lords and that there's no other way where man, whereby man can be saved but him. I know that he died on a cross for me. I know all of these things that they're singing about. I know that he's redeemed me and delivered me from bondage. He did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He's washed it white as snow. He did it all, all for me and you. And he did it by himself alone. He suffered and died alone. And he will destroy the wicked on this earth alone. He will do it by himself. And why does he do it? So that we can come home to him. So that we can come to his holy habitation in heaven so that we can enter his heavenly temple and let me tell you what you don't have to wait till you die to do that you can do that now you can come into his presence right now because when you come to his temple now you get in your closet and you go before the lord you know what you're going to notice when you get there the door is wide open and he beckons you come on Dine with me, and I will dine with you. Book of Redemption, that's what we're reading about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the work that you've done, the work you're going to do to redeem your creation. Lord, since it's all your work, help us to rest in that, Lord. Somehow we get to thinking at times that we've got to help you along in these matters. Somehow we need to pass judgment on people and, and, and help destroy the wicked. And, and Lord, that, that we need to help with our salvation. We're not quite good enough. Lord, we'll never be good enough. We know that. You alone are good enough. You alone have died for us. You alone have saved us. And Lord, now we have the privilege, even this very moment, to come to your holy habitation, to walk through those open doors and to praise you and declare how great and majestic you are and how great and majestic are your works. Father, we're so blessed to be your children. Lord, help us to learn to rest in you. Rest in your work. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.